Welcome to another Freshfields Tax Matters podcast. I'm Josh Critchlow with the London Tax Team. Against a backdrop of rampant inflation, already high levels of public debt, and the Bank of England predicting a prolonged recession, Chancellor Jeremy Hunt needed to deliver a careful budget that would preserve public spending priorities whilst demonstrating to financial markets that the UK public finances will be kept under control. To achieve this, the Chancellor set out a sober speech with a plan to raise an enormous amount of tax. To discuss the tax policies in this autumn statement, I'm delighted to be joined by UK tax partners Jill Gatehouse and Paul Davison. Hello, Jill and Paul. Hi, Josh. Hi, Josh. Paul, to start us off, can we start by trying to put some context around this autumn statement? Uh, well, we've been on a bit of a roller coaster, as most of our listeners will have noticed. Almost all of the fiscal measures from September's mini-budget have now been reversed. The main thing that survived was the 2.5% cut to overall national insurance contribution rates. But that cut itself was only the reversing of an increase that came in just in April this year. Similarly, the mini-budget abolished the health and social care levy, and that survived. But that involved abolishing a new tax that hadn't even yet been implemented. On the corporation tax rate, on bank surcharge and on the diverted profits tax rate, the easiest way to understand what's gone on is just to pretend you've been asleep for the last six months. We thought back then that the corporation tax rate was going up by six points to 25%, with the surcharge rate coming down by five points to 3% and DPT still being set at a punitive level above that. And that is indeed what's happening, uh, the September mini-budget notwithstanding. So I suppose this all makes it quite difficult to follow what's going on in terms of the overall tax rate. Well, absolutely. Um, one, one place, though, where the twists and turns are captured reasonably well, which we always find quite useful to look at, is the policy costings table, which is included towards the end of the autumn statement document. That starts with the spring statement, so the position as it was then, and then rolls forward through the various fiscal events we've had since then, including September's mini-budget or growth plan, as it's referred to there, uh, before layering on top of that yesterday's announcements. If we look then at the figures in that table, where are the things that are really moving the dial? Well, the biggest announcements in terms of exchequer impact are the windfall taxes on energy companies, and we'll come back to that. I want to ask you about that, Josh. But in addition to that, there are the so-called stealth taxes. This is where the headline rate doesn't change, but the thresholds are allowed to lag behind inflation, which of course is particularly material right now, or the thresholds are, are even cut. So we see there the threshold for the 45% income tax rate cut to just over 125,000 from 150,000. That was heavily trailed. But we've also got a slashing going forward of the annual exempt amount for CGT plus cuts in the dividend allowance. And then the, the stealthiest of the revenue raising measures is in the NICS arena. And that's where the threshold for payment of employers NICS, which is usually uprated with inflation, is to be held at its current level for five years. And that's going to raise about £5 billion per annum. That's really quite a large number. The, the other thing that 
strikes you when you when you look at the policy costings is how much of this fiscal tightening has been postponed until 2025. What do you make of that? Well, you're right. It's particularly noticeable that on the spending side, where you see that the autumn statement has actually increased spending for the next couple of years, but then projects savings of tens of billions per annum after that. And it's quite explicit. It says the near-term policy decisions are, quote, more supportive than those in the spring statement. But from 2025, there's, quote, material tightening. And you can wonder about the politics of that. Rachel Reeves has complained of an election trap. Uh, but equally, it's quite hard to see how this makes the Conservatives any more electable at the next election. I also find it quite interesting, though, from the fiscal credibility point of view. Here we have one parliament telling us, or telling the markets, more to the point, that it's all going to be okay because the next parliament, which this one can't bind, and which might look completely different, will exercise massive spending restraint. Anyhow, that's perhaps straying a little bit from the topic at hand, which is the tax policy decisions. And as I mentioned before, uh, business tax rates have remained mostly unchanged in the autumn statement, but um, that certainly isn't the case for all business, is it, Josh? No, un unfortunately for energy companies, the Chancellor appears to have embraced windfall taxes with enthusiasm. Of course, we already had the Energy Profits Levy, or EPL, a 25% windfall tax on oil and gas companies enacted in the summer. That feels like a long time ago, but it really wasn't. That was expected to raise about £20 billion until its scheduled sunset in 2025. Now the Chancellor proposes to increase the rate of energy profits levy from 25 to 35% and extend its duration to 2028. And this is aiming to almost double the amount of tax that it will bring in to more than £40 billion. Part of the detail here is that the investment allowance of the energy profits levy will be scaled back in percentage terms from 80% to 29% so that after taking account of the higher tax rates, the cash value of relief from investment remains roughly the same, potentially as much as 91p in the pound, assuming the company gets relief across all the levels of taxation paid by oil and gas companies. And there are also plans for enhanced investment allowances for decarbonisation expenditure. The investment allowance is welcome, but now the 75% effective rate on oil and gas producers is really quite high, and, and it's disingenuous for the government to suggest this is comparable with countries like Norway. Yes, Norway has very high tax rates, but it has also been fiscally much more stable than the UK. And the rates in Norway are balanced with the ability to fully deduct business costs. Energy profits levy, on the other hand, expressly denies tax relief for decommissioning costs, which are often substantial for oil companies. So energy profits levy is much more of a money grab than a serious attempt at a balanced oil tax system. There is, however, a promise of a consultation on the longer-term framework for UK oil and gas taxation with a view to stability in the long term. Speaking of money grabs, even the clean energy producers have now been hit with a windfall tax. The electricity generators levy will hit primarily nuclear, wind and biomass electricity generators, and it is a 45% tax on the wholesale revenues above a benchmark of £75 per megawatt hour. For context, that, that level is about 1.5 times historic prices, but is only a fraction of current prices. And it's striking that this is a revenues-based tax without any allowances for costs. The government's justification for that is that the costs for these clean energy producers haven't gone up that much.
producers like gas fire generators where the fossil fuel inputs have clearly gone up are excluded from the measure. This is therefore a very crude way to define windfall profits. There is however a line in the technical note to the effect that some recognition could be given if a producer has experienced exceptional increases in costs, but the detail around that has yet to be fleshed out. So there's a lot here for the industry to digest. But what about other sectors? Jill, I heard the Chancellor mention that Britain is to become the next Silicon Valley. How is that going to be achieved? Thanks, Josh. Yes, he did say that. In the context of the speech, many of the ways in which that would be achieved are not tax specific. They relate to regulatory reform, both in terms of tariffs and also providing more flexibility for insurance companies as to how they may invest their money. That's the reforms to Solvency II that were um, that have been dis- uh, consulted on. Um, But a key point is the restated commitment that we should be aiming for 2.4% of our GDP to be invested in R&D in Britain. And that's where tax incentives come in, of course. The autumn statement confirms that the previously announced broadening of categories of expenditure that qualify for RDEC and research and development credit for SMEs will go ahead. That's good news for business. That includes um, expenditure on data and cloud, where it's incurred directly for R&D. And also with the addition of pure maths, which is way above my capabilities, uh, as a form of R&D. RDEC and R&D credits have, however, been an area where there's been lots of publicity recently of allegations of abuse. We already knew from previous consultations that there would be restrictions imposed to ensure that the expenditure on workers overseas is only allowable if it's absolutely necessary to use overseas workers, for example, where non-UK clinical trials are necessary. Um, In addition, perhaps reflecting a perception that certain rogue advisors are encouraging exploitation in relation to these rules, the compliance around these reliefs are going to change. And that will include a requirement to state in a claim the name of any agent that's been involved. Those were things that we already knew about, but yesterday the government announced an increase in the rate of RDEC, so that's the relief available to all companies, from 13% to 20%. However, this is coupled with a reduction in the rates of relief for the specific additional reliefs currently available to SMEs. There's also suggestion in the papers that the government will look to phase out the additional reliefs in this area that are available to SMEs and look to have a single scheme of relief in relation to research and development credits. An interesting point to observe is that despite the increase in the rate of relief for RDEC and the expanded scope, the changes are actually set to be revenue accretive for the government, over £4 billion over the next five years. So whilst the increase in the rate of RDEC from 13% to 20% is obviously favourable from a taxpayer's perspective, over the long term, the changes in this area are expected to save the government money. On the subject of reliefs, the government also announced a consultation on reforming tax reliefs available to the UK's highly successful audiovisual sector. There isn't time to go into that now, and it's quite an early stage consultation. But interestingly, one of the reasons stated for the need to look at reform in this area is the prospect that the current relief system might be treated unfavourably from the perspective of Pillar 2. So, Bringing me on to Pillar 2, Paul, what was said on Pillar 2 in the autumn statement? Thanks, Jill. Well, the autumn statement mainly confirmed what we already thought we knew on Pillar 2. That is to say that the UK will implement it. It'll do so in a finance bill next spring, uh, with the main income inclusion rule coming in from 31 December 2023. And that now seems to be a firm decision, or at least it's firm enough that the policy costings table we've been talking about shows some revenue flowing from it. 
The government says it also plans to implement the undertaxed profits rule or UTPR, uh, but that's obviously on the back burner. It doesn't look like the legislation will be included in next year's finance bill. And the implementation date for that would be no earlier than 31 December 2024. One development is that the UK has confirmed that it will adopt a qualified domestic minimum top-up tax rule, or QDMTT. And interestingly, it says that that rule will apply to wholly UK groups, so long as they have revenues above the 750 million euro threshold. Uh, that's in the same way that we expect the EU directive, should it come in, would also apply in fully domestic scenarios, albeit, of course, in the EU context, we know that uh, member states are forced into that approach by the terms of the EU treaty. Interesting. So given that we're not required by the EU treaty now to do that, why do you think the government is doing that, Paul? I'm not entirely sure. The stated rationale for going ahead with Pillar 2 more generally is itself a little bit intriguing. It might be somewhat throwaway, but the autumn statement says that Pillar 2, quotes, will protect the UK tax base against aggressive tax planning and reinforce the competitiveness of the UK. And you could be excused for thinking that the UK already had sufficient protections against aggressive tax planning, particularly on an intra-UK basis. And it's hard to see how additional tax on wholly UK groups could ever improve UK competitiveness. Standing back from that point around the application of the QDMTT to wholly UK groups, the reasons to implement Pillar 2 are really just that others might and that, that's particularly so as regards the QDMTT more generally, where it applies to UK-headed multinational groups. The logic there is that if other jurisdictions enact UTPRs, apologies for all the acronyms, then those would counteract undertaxed UK profits anyway. So the UK may as well take the tax revenue for itself. And even as regards the income inclusion rule more generally, I think UK-headed groups would rather have a UK-implemented IIR than face a host of other countries' UTPRs, with the potential for differential applications for disputes and general complexity that would come with that. So in that sense, I can see that it protects UK competitiveness to have Pillar 2 in the UK, assuming that others do too. And if it's widely implemented, you can also see how overall the UK could regard that as a win for UK competitiveness, in as much as, very broadly speaking, it puts a 15% floor under the effective tax rate that other countries can use to compete. Of course, the ideal backdrop against which to see a 15% floor introduced internationally would be one in which your own tax rate was at or not much above 15%. Uh, the benefits of it are, are rather reduced now that the UK tax rate is going to 25% rather than 19 You You keep saying, Paul, if others implement. Where are we on that? Well, it seems highly likely that a significant number, at least, of big economies will go ahead, including in the EU. Maybe not the EU as a whole, but certainly the major economies there seem committed to it. Uh, even so, if you assume that income inclusion rules might start to come in at the end of 2023, with the undertax profit rules following a year after that, you could still make the case that the UK shouldn't implement its own QDMTT before the later date. O on implementation, though, of course, the elephant in the room here is the US. And I think we can say the outcome from the midterms 
is such that whatever chance there might have been of movement in the US's international tax rules before, it's probably gone for now. So the real question is what political accommodation might be reached at the OECD level in relation to the US system, and in particular, whether the current guilty system, which really looks nothing like Pillar 2, particularly because it doesn't operate country by country, whether guilty is recognized just as a CFC rule, or whether somehow, with considerable squinting, it's accepted as Pillar 2 compliant. If you had that as the outcome, then arguably it would give US-headed groups quite an advantage here. And you mentioned that the policy costings indicate some revenue raising here. That surprised us a bit, didn't it? Yes, it did. And the, the numbers shown in the autumn statement are not trivial. The suggestion is that the UK will raise around £2 billion a year from Pillar 2 going forward. And one might ask, as an initial question, how on earth anyone calculates a projected figure for Pillar 2 revenue, given how dependent it is on other jurisdictions' uh, domestic tax rules and also critically on the extent to which other jurisdictions themselves uh, implement Pillar 2. And so far as the UK tax base is concerned, you might also wonder to what extent it's really the case that multinational or UK-only groups are operating in the UK on a basis that is achieving a effective tax rate here of less than 15%. But uh, so far as the anti-avoidance side of things is concerned, and moving neatly on from Pillar 2 as a measure that supposedly is going to reduce aggressive tax planning, uh, generally, or going back a few years at any rate, we'd find ourselves as tax advisors swamped with new anti-avoidance measures. But this time, pillar two aside, if you view it in that way, there was just one, which was an announcement around anti-avoidance rules on share exchanges. Jill, can you tell us more about that? Yes, as you say, Paul, just just one um, one document on the revenue website, um, which is somewhat unusual. It's quite a niche point as well. So it's something that I'll talk about more because it's of interest to tax practitioners rather than to suggest that this is going to be day-to-day -day relevant for large business. But interestingly, it's estimated to raise quite a chunky amount of tax. It's approximately 830 million of the 1.7 billion anti-avoidance tax referred to in the materials. The measure itself is aimed at targeting tax avoidance by UK resident but non-UK domiciled individuals using the share-for-share -share exchange rules in 135136 TCGA and it has effect from yesterday. So taking a step back, just to explain this, individuals who are UK resident and UK domiciled are liable to pay UK income tax and CGT on their worldwide income and gains in the tax year in which they arise. But individuals who are so-called non-DOMs, as we know them, i.e. UK resident but not UK domiciled, can elect to be taxed on the remittance basis instead. And this broadly means that they're subject to UK tax only on UK source income and gains. And they're not subject to UK tax on non-UK source income and gains, unless and until that income or gain is remitted to the UK. That's the remittance basis. So the concern here seems to be that the share-for-share -share exchange rules could be used by non-DOMs to roll over value accrued in shares and securities in a UK company, i.e. 
a UK CITUS asset into shares and securities into a non-UK incorporated company, i.e. a non-UK CITUS asset, with the result that um, that any new income and gains arising on those new non-UK CITUS assets, if they're not remitted to the UK, will be outside of the scope of UK tax. The new rules provide that where the company itself is a close company, so without going into detail on that, it's broadly a company with five or fewer controllers, although be aware that the attribution rules are notoriously broad here, so you can end up with attribution giving you less than five controllers in circumstances where the shareholding is much broader than that. And if the relevant non-DOM individual has at least a 5% interest that has a number of definitions in the, in the new rule, the new rule will apply so that unless the taxpayer elects for rollover treatment not to apply, i.e. pays tax on the disposal of the shares on the share for share exchange, the shares in the non-UK CITUS company will be treated as UK CITUS on an ongoing basis. So that means that the remittance basis of taxation won't be available to them in relation to either income or gains on those shares going forward. There's no motive element to this, so it will apply regardless of what the reasons for doing the share for share exchange. And in fact, the interesting point to note is that obviously those listening to this podcast may well be aware that there is already an inbuilt anti-avoidance rule in the share for share exchange rules anyway in section 135. So HMRC clearly intend that for the purposes of applying this rule, they're not going to be looking at motivations and they don't want to be questioning whether there was a tax reason for undertaking the share for share exchange in the first place. As I mentioned, the, for something so specific, I thought the numbers expected to be raised were quite interesting, um, including the specificity um, over them for future years. And perhaps it demonstrated to me the scale of the relief that the remittance system of taxation for non-DOMs actually does provide. It's worth noting that this is, you know, the non-DOM system itself is something that Labour has traditionally said that they would repeal altogether. So that was an unexpected bit of tax policy included in the statement, but perhaps not for everyone's wider uh, application on a day-to-day -day basis. But Josh, there were quite a few potential things that weren't included. Thanks, Jill. That, that's right. There was quite a lot of speculation about possible tax policy measures that the Chancellor might introduce. But leaving aside the changes on thresholds and the enormous windfall taxes, there wasn't actually any real innovation or radical new tax policy in this autumn statement. So it's notable that it had been mooted that the CGT rates might be increased closer to income tax rates, but that didn't materialise. And, and there was speculation about an increase in the dividend rate, but then that didn't materialise either. Although it's, it's worth noting that the uh, reduction in the dividend allowance is itself going to bring in about a billion pounds a year by 2028. In terms of other more technical tax policy, we didn't hear anything further on the idea of introducing a corporate redomiciliation regime or on reforms to the scope of the sovereign immunity tax exemption, both of which had been consulted on. However, there might be more opportunities for fiscal innovation in the near future. We learned that we are now expecting both an autumn finance bill and a spring finance bill. And unfortunately, one font of tax policy we won't be hearing from further is the Office for Tax Simplification, as it was confirmed the government will proceed with its abolition after it has reported on hybrid and distance working later in the year. So to sum it up, a careful budget where the heavy lifting on raising revenue was done with a combination of below-the-radar taxes on employment and headline-grabbing windfall taxes on energy producers, leaving just about everyone feeling a little bit poorer, but pr 
probably doing just enough to maintain public spending and reassure financial markets of the UK's fiscal credibility. Thank you to both our guests, Jill Gatehouse and Paul Davison. And if listeners would like to hear more on the autumn statement or UK or international tax policy, please check out our website or get in touch with your usual Freshfields contact.